0: When Vera Lynn sang The White Cliffs of Dover and They'll Always Be in England to British troops back in World War II, no doubt they pictured the idyllic landscapes of the English countryside back home.
1: Beautiful countryside, lovely villages, the most fantastic views imaginable from the top of the Downs.
0: Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, 2 seasoned guides from England explain some of our own options for enjoying the beloved British countryside on foot where Roman ruins, medieval abbeys, and even wild ponies are part of the scenery and dinners waiting at the next cozy pub
2: just around the bend. The British generally take their walking very seriously. There are hundreds of thousands of miles of footpaths, bridleways, organized trailways, right across the length and breadth of Britain.
0: We're getting inspired to gallivant, meander, pub hop, and ramble all across the pastoral landscapes of Britain the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. If your life is short on charm, then a few leisurely days meandering the countryside of England is probably just what the doctor ordered. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today's Travel with Rick Steves is dedicated to getting us out into the bucolic scenery of rural Britain. We'll open the phones a little later in the hour at 877-333-7425 to hear from listeners who've gotten out on their own to explore the landscapes of England and Scotland. Let's start our overview of Pastoral Britain with Blue Badge Certified Guide Gillian Chadwick. She specializes in taking American visitors around her country. She's joined by Roy Nichols. He's a guide and historian who's based in the scenic landscapes of Dorset, which were celebrated in the works of Thomas Hardy. Jillian and Roy, thanks for joining us today. Good afternoon, Rick.
1: Hello.
0: I I think about England and, of course, we go to London and uh, we want to have it as a springboard to get out into the countryside. Gillian, you commute into London. Where do you live, actually?
1: I live uh, near Brighton, just at the foot of the Downs, the South Downs, which is one of the most popular walking routes in England.
0: Now, when I think of pastoral England, really South Downs comes to mind. Absolutely. What is it about the South Downs that, that causes you to want to live there?
1: Uh, Beautiful countryside, lovely villages, the most fantastic views imaginable from the top of the Downs.
0: What's a beautiful little village in the South Downs?
1: Uh, Ditchling. Ditchling. Where Vera Lynn lives. Ah. And that's the next village to me. Nobody famous lives in my village, except me, of course.
0: Right. Uh, that's even something charming about the villages is the names of them. And Roy, you and I were in Alfriston, right? That's right. Many, many, many moons ago. Beautiful, beautiful. As yeah. a, and we met so many people down there just hiking. That's yeah. what they're doing. Mm. English people love to walk. What is it about this English
2: passion for getting out and, well, I, and walking? Well, I think it's a love of the countryside. Oddly enough, England is a, a very sort of urban society, But paradoxically, at the same time, you know, with the vast majority of living in cities, places like Birmingham, London, of course, Liverpool, Manchester, all the others, is that people have an idea of, an image of the countryside. um, And being out and enjoying it, walking, really is what it's about. Now, you live in Dorset. Yeah. Thomas Hardy country. Yeah, that's right. It's about uh, 30 miles southwest of Salisbury.
0: Now, when you say you have an image of what you want when you go out and, and, and walk and commune with nature,
2: what is that image for you? Well, it, it's that English idyll of thatch cottages, country lanes, woods, fields—very undramatic countryside. But um, is with a bright beating sun or with a sort of a misty drizzle? Uh, more likely to be the misty drizzle in in being in England. But I think there is. I think somebody once described England as being like a, a handmade quilt, um, and it isn't dramatic. It it is man-made, but is like being what in one enormous garden. Mm. All
0: my adult life, I've been going to places in England famous for great walks, but I haven't really done it justice and get out there and actually take some serious Mm. walks. In the last couple of years, my theme has been to get out and actually walk. The Cotswolds are altogether different when you actually take a hike, when you leave your car Mm. in one town and and lease together three or four towns by walking. You don't walk the roads. You you see the backyard of the barns. You can't appreciate
1: Mm. the Cotswolds unless you're on foot. You have to be amongst all the trees and the fields and the birds singing, and you, it's gorgeous.
0: You find different dimensions. What's yes. the dimension of the Cotswolds you would find if you took a walk, right
2: Well, it's it's getting to see those fields and woods and houses that are off the beaten track. That's the main thing. The, English, or the British generally take their walking very seriously. There are hundreds of thousands of miles of footpaths, bridleways, organized trailways, right across the length and breadth of Britain. And just like Americans will defend their right to own a gun, the British defend their right to walk everywhere, don't to they? To walk, yes. Yeah. Uh, in in some countries, like Scotland, there is an open access to the countryside. In in England and Wales, it's more formal, where you have to keep certain footpaths and things, but there are something like 300,000 miles of footpath in England alone.
0: Tell me about the mass trespass. I just love that.
2: Well, this was um, a period in the 1920s and 30s when so much land was still in the in the grasp of many of the uh, traditional, uh, almost feudal, medieval landowners. And for the first time, ordinary people were beginning to want access to their land, to their countryside. And so there was a whole period of people going out and deliberately breaking all the trespass rules. Just in order to assert their to right. To establish and assert their right to be in the countryside. So, so you, can have a, you can have a, a fence, but you need to provide a gate to get through it or over it. Is that right? Uh, famously, footpaths go through people's gardens. They go through uh, Danny in Dorset. Madonna used to live in Dorset. And regardless of who she was, where she lived, there was a footpath went straight across her front door. Oh, she front fought door. it though, didn't she? She did, she didn't but she want didn't. Madonna. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Really. She and tried she just to stop didn't. Stop she it. couldn't believe yeah. that somebody could just walk across. So, so Madonna met
0: a force that she couldn't shape with her power, and that was yes. the yes. English determination Absolutely. to be able to walk across. People have been walking along that footpath yes, for hundreds right of to. years,
2: <laughs> and nothing was going to stop it.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about pastoral Britain. We're joined by Jillian Chadwick and Roy Nichols, two friends of mine who are tour guides in beautiful Britain. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and David's on the line from Knoxville, Tennessee. David, thanks for your call.
3: Yes, how are you? Um, I'm wondering if you could recommend some areas in England with beautiful pastoral scenery and and idyllic country villages that will be off the tourist path. That are, are there some... Um, Really wonderful places that are not as well known for pastoral scenery that you might. Well, not
2: I, met. I I can just easily direct you towards Dorset because <laughs> <laughs> it is it is my county, and although people know it because of Thomas Hardy and some of the other great writers, um, very few tourists, even in Britain, actually make it down to Dorset. Do I know what do I know about Dorset? Exactly. Right? And I it's, mean, I wrote a book about Britain. Honestly,
0: I, I must have something in the book that is in Dorset. What town is in Dorset that
2: um, I cover? Well, Cernabus, the Cernabus Giants. Cernabus. Okay, so this yeah. is
0: this is if you're driving from London
2: down to Lands End in Cornwall, you'll probably zip right through Dorset. Dorset. The the boundaries of Dorset starts a hundred miles from the southwest of London, and it's a small county. You pass through it in in forty fifty miles, but it has quintessentially English countryside. Uh, those lovely little fields, the hedgerows. Thatch cottages galore, ancient monuments. There isn't anything that you can't find indoors. But if you're going to go to why settle? Why not just go to Cornwall? I, I love Cornwall, but... Everybody and his auntie goes to Cornwall during the summer months, and David is wanting to find somewhere that's off the beaten track, lots of footpaths, little villages, pubs. So you got the charm of Cornwall without the intense tourism. Exactly, and All some right. of the most beautiful, both coastal and countryside scenery you'll find anywhere in the south of England. And may I say
1: yes. that even closer to London <laughs> is Sussex. <laughs>
2: And what does about Sussex? Well,
1: Sussex is just the best.
0: Sussex. <laughs> what does that mean, Sussex? It's
1: so the land of the South Saxons. South Saxons, Sussex. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. Oh. So. Uh, and Wessex. Of the West Saxons. North Essex. Yeah, Essex. Essex be, is the East Saxons. Oh, I didn't realize
0: Sussex, Essex, Wessex. Yeah. yeah. And there is no North. No, no, the North no,
1: Saxons no. had no sex. So. No. <laughs>
0: Well, there you go. Good tour guide <laughs> they history. died out. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about uh, Dorset, Roy's uh, County, as being charming like Cornwall without the tourists. How would you characterize Sussex? Well, you've got South It's very Downs.
1: similar countryside because it's chalk. But that's the
0: thing about England. And, and, David, when you're wondering about this, you've got charm everywhere you look. Mm. I mean, get out of Birmingham, get out of Manchester, get out of London, take a small road. And you can find people just as proud of their county as, mm. as uh, I, I think
2: what also comes as a surprise to people is that Britain is a very small little island, eight hundred miles north to south, but the variety that you'll get, you take anybody from England, drop them in Sussex, drop them in Dorset, they'll know where they are by the How diff- will you know? Well, the, the shape of the buildings, the way they designed, the way they built, the materials they use. It's a lot of flint in, in Sussex. We use a lot of what they call thatch and cob in Dorset. So it doesn't take you long to realize that you're in each. You can go 30 miles and have subtle differences. Let's say I blindfold you and I take you to a pub. And I've been most of the, most of the pubs in Dorset. <laughs> you would know most of them.
0: But if I took you to one in Sussex and one in Dorset, could you open your eyes and know which
2: county you were in? Yeah, what would I, you look for? Uh, the, the types of beers they sell, for okay. instance, because the, the local brewery will give you a good indicator because there are still lots of regional breweries and things. Oh, yeah. Um, so there's all sorts of little subtle signs. Little subtle things. But yeah. so that is a beautiful thing about traveling in Britain is mm, the, the yeah. diversity
0: and the charm. Thank you very much, David, for your call. Thank you. Yeah. Wayne's on the phone in Columbus, Ohio. Wayne, thanks for your call. Thanks for having me. Yeah. What are your thoughts on, on pastoral Britain? Any questions for Roy and Jillian?
3: My family and I, uh, we visited, uh, the Cotswolds area this past September and, uh, we spent about three days there, stayed at Stowe and, uh, I uh, noticed that when we traveled, the horses, when we talked to people, they said horses had right-of-ways on the roads, uh, the little country lanes, and we went into various pubs in Stowe and a couple other towns, and I was at how the people just brought in their, their dog into the pub, sat at the table and ate with them, and I, did, I was just curious, is this something that's just uh, in the Cotswolds area, or is that something all, no, in the all of the English countries? No, it's we'd... all over
1: the country. So the dogs yeah. will sit at the
2: table and eat with you?
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah, not the horses, though. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, I, no, I, no, no, the horses <laughs> weren't
2: the <laughs> <laughs> I've always, I've got a border collie called Meg. She comes to the pub with me nine times out of ten. Do you know the the little pub in downtown Keswick that
0: is called the Dog and Gun? Dog yes. and Gun. Yeah. Dog and Gun. Yeah. There's a dog menu. There's all that, you've got to step over all the dogs. And, and it's just like the humans and the dogs share mm. the place. Yeah.
1: That's the difference between England and America. You can take your dog in the pub, but you can't take your gun. Whereas in America, you can take your gum, but you can't take your dog. Whoa,
0: now we're talking. I think so. <laughs> dogs are just part of the scene all yeah. over Europe. Yeah. And a lot of Americans just kind of go, I can't eat this food here because it might have a dog's hair on it. You know?
2: Well, it's I, more the humans you have to worry about, I would have thought, to be <laughs> honest.
1: Yeah. They don't charge extra for hair, no. do they? No. No, no that's right.
0: <laughs> so, Wayne, tell us more about your pub experience with dogs.
3: Well, I was just amazed. We, we uh, ate and drank at the pub in Stowe. It was crowded with people, there must have been three or four dogs, and they just quietly came and just part of the family sat quietly at the table. Wayne,
2: I think you've put your finger on it, is the very fact that it's like being in a family home. Public house. It's a public house, it's a social center, it's not a place just to go and get food, just to go and get alcohol. Um, It's a place to be with your It's a place to be with your friends, your family, and part of that family is your dog. Bring your mom, bring your kids, bring your dog. Anybody. There are some pubs that have no dogs rule, but the good pubs allow dogs. Oh,
3: that's great.
2: All right. Good luck on
0: your travels, Wayne. Thanks for your call.
3: Okay, thank you.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. More on Pastoral Britain with Roy Nichols, Gillian Chadwick, and your calls. Just a moment.
4: The
2: shepherd will tend his sheep The valley will bloom again And Jimmy will go in his own little room
3: again
2: There'll be blue
0: Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. an hour in the English countryside today on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll check in with listeners at 877-333-7425 for their reports of backroad British adventures that you can experience for yourself in just a bit. Right now, our escorts into the British countryside are two expert guides from England, Gillian Chadwick and Roy Nichols. Gillian, when I think of Bath, I think, not only of a beautiful Georgian city, but sort of a springboard into the countryside. There's plenty of opportunities, even from a, a city, to side trip out. What do you like to do as a side trip from Bath if you're going to connect with nature?
1: Well, it's possible to go further west to Glastonbury, uh-huh. and you pass through a beautiful countryside. You go into Somerset, which has some of the most beautiful countryside. This is cheese country, isn't it? It yes, is indeed, cheddar. yes. Cheddar, cheddar cheese, yeah. cheddar gorge. Mm-hmm.
0: Roy, where would you, how would you appreciate cheese country as you're hiking through the countryside? Oh, well, you
2: extent. find them everywhere. I think it's one of those things that has become much more localized. There was a turn away from that in the 1960s and 70s where things were becoming more sort of factory-orientated and mass-produced. And like so many different things we eat today, it's becoming much more local. Small farm cheese producers. Yeah, yeah in individual markets, farms yeah.
0: or. Uh, so you go to a little town like Glastonbury or Wells or Bath yeah. and yeah. you can learn about these in the markets. And yeah, and, they have and,
1: all the local produce. So you, in you can the venture out
0: on a bicycle, walking along a towpath on a canal oh, or, yeah. or taking a hike yeah. or, or even car joyriding in a car. You might even stumble upon a scrumpy farm.
2: Right. Tell us about the joys well, of a scrumpy farm. What's uh, scrumpy? Scrumpy is is hard cider and this is sometimes confuses people but it's the very very alcoholic cider. It's the much older drink than beer. We've drunk cider in this country for thousands of years. Apples are native. It's a natural thing to turn it into something to drink and the British do like their I drink. could
0: see that happening just accidentally. You've got a jug of apple juice and you well, come it, back next week and you got it exactly some with good all scrumpy.
2: the na- natural uh, yeast that they have with it and Uh, Good cider is just fermented apple juice, naturally fermented. And you can find that in a small farm in a characteristic Oh, I mean, there are some areas in Britain, places like Herefordshire and Somerset, that Gillian mentioned, down in Dorset, where I live as well, where there are lots and lots of dozens, hundreds of different local farms that produce cider. And scrumpy is a name given to particularly... Hard cider. So, all cider
0: is not scrumpy. Scrumpy is the beef jerky of cider. Exactly. It's very
2: unrefined, not subtle at all. Dangerous stuff.
0: Yes. So, if somebody offers you a cider, they might be trying to get you drunk. Oh,
2: I I would never doubt that. I would never (laughs) doubt that at all.
1: It's very popular with American tourists. I know I know yeah. pub
0: guys who run pubs that don't serve it because it mm. causes people to be a little it, violent. It does, yeah. Yes. You, you don't want some
2: broken glass in your pub. Don't serve the scrumpy. Well, because people don't realize it can be so deceptive how strong <laughs> it is. It
1: doesn't taste strong, does it? When no, you drink it's... it, it doesn't taste strong at all. And yeah.
2: then you become all of a
0: sudden, it sort of puts you on the fast track to being a local. Yeah, in a pub. It's
1: one way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you become
0: part of the party in a pub. <laughs> yeah, if you don't, if you're not into the uh, ales
2: and, and you know the room temp. Well, temperature it's what beer. we were talking about earlier. Is that when you go into a pub, and all communities have pubs. I mean, so many of them have disappeared, but when you go into the bar, you're amongst the locals. That's where they hang out with their friends, their families, their cronies, drink the local cider, drink the local beer, and and uh, you're part of the community.
0: So we've been talking about the West Country here around uh, Mm. Somerset, cheddar cheese country, Bath, Wells, Glastonbury. When you travel around, I guess, all of England, but I I think here these uh, ruined abbeys, to me, these are pastoral as can be. They're sort of drenched
2: in in the beautiful, green, lush scenery of of Britain. It's a strange paradox that they are uh, such a quintessential part of the countryside today. You find them everywhere, hundreds of them and yet they're a product of one of the worst periods in English history, the suppression of the monasteries during the Reformation in the 16th century. And it was so a, 1500s. Uh,
0: 1530s, 1539. Monasteries right? getting too, um, too annoying to the king, and the king just decided. Well, Henry VIII acquiring their wealth and power. So at that point, one of the great landowners, one of the great rich powers in the country would have been the monasteries, and Henry can just dissolve them?
2: Exactly. He had no control over them, so it's both the wealth and the power that he coveted. from a sightseeing point of view today, what does that leave us? Beautiful, beautiful, romantic ruins—ivy-covered, a few walls yes. standing, a few arches—and and there are famous ones like Glastonbury Abbey, Tintern, Revo, um, all of those. Oh, but I, there are lots of little local ones as Gillian, well. Gillian, what, what ruined abbey do you like?
1: Uh, I like—I'm going out of the south of England now, but going up further up north, in Yorkshire. Uh, many of the abbeys and monasteries were in Yorkshire because it was remote. And it's fountains, isn't it? The f- most famous one in Yorkshire, which is glorious.
0: So there's so many dimensions of the English countryside that you can incorporate into your walk. Mm-hmm. You've mm-hmm. got, of course, the medieval great architecture of the abbeys. Yeah. You've got the wonderful culture in the pubs and agriculture and, mm-hmm. and B&Bs. You can you can actually lace
2: together a bunch of farmhouse B&Bs in the context of a walk.
1: Yeah, easily, yeah.
2: That's pretty routine to do? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. and And in fact, many of the established footpaths have accommodation guides, you can find the, um, a guide for the footpath itself. Okay, so I was and, on
0: Hadrian's Wall last year, and I met a, a school group yeah. walking from one coast to the other across England, and every night they would possibly would have been using one of these books, and it would lay out where there's a exactly, B&B or a hostel. Yeah. Yeah. When you cross England, when you go cross-country, you're very likely to come upon your own private Stonehenge, especially if you have a good map. England is like an open-air folk museum with these...
2: Prehistoric. Megalithic. Well, megalithic just means large stone. Large stone. Uh, but there's this period of the prehistoric, which right. is, you know, before the coming of the Romans, when over thousands of years our ancestors built stone circles, standing stones, earthworks of all sorts of varieties. and There are thousands of them across the countryside. So how do you know to hit these things when you're planning your walk? Well, maps. If you get a whole series of, of good maps and things, all of these will be listed and featured on the maps, but there are guides to... Uh, monuments of all periods. If you want to research, if you want a theme to your walk, be it of the prehistoric period or medieval, uh, the abbeys and things, you can find guides that will highlight the best of them. And also many of the trails that, again, there'll be information about what you'll be seeing on the route.
0: You know, one of the big distractions and temptations for me when I'm traveling in Britain is the wonderful little bookshops you find in in these towns. And they've published so many great books Mm -hmm. that you're never short of information if you just want to pick up a book. there little staple-bound local publications, and just Mm. make it all very well organized.
1: Yeah, all the local towns have the tourist offices and they always have the the routes for those footpaths and anything of interest en route.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Gillian Chedwick and Roy Nichols about the pastoral delights of Britain. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Barb's on the phone from Westchester, Ohio. Barb, thanks for your call.
3: Yes. um, My husband and I have been to England. We've been to London. We've been to Bath, Stonehenge. We've been up into Sheffield. And we want to go back, and we'd like to be able to combine some walking along with bicycling and uh, stopping at the end of the day at one of these B&Bs at pubs, that sort of thing. Is there a particular area of the country that they would recommend us uh, taking a look at a little more closely?
0: By bike or by foot?
3: Both. My husband loves to do the walking, and I like to do the biking.
1: Well, depending on how fit you are, how many hills you want to do.
0: So your husband's going to just run alongside and you're going to (laughs) bike?
3: No, 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 no. (laughs) Because I also want to stop at those bookstores you were talking about.
0: Well, you'll get there first. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's quite an image, isn't it? It is <laughs> indeed. Two Americans running around, one with a bike and one without. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, well, I, you I, could take any any area, you could go. Are, are the bike's Lake okay district, on the trails. Or, yes.
2: Mountain bikes, or
1: yeah, usually, yeah.
2: Well, it, again, it depends. I mean, if you, as mm. Gillian's just said, if you're in some of the hillier country like the Lake District, maybe you might need a mountain bike. But there's areas right. complete opposite, like East Anglia, Norfolk, and Suffolk. Mm,
1: that's good for cycling, flat, it's flat. Yeah, very,
2: mm-hmm. very flat. Um, so, okay. what Gillian was saying, essentially, I think you need to, you know, make some estimation of your own um, how well you can do it, and then decide on the area. Pick an area that's got a few more hills and things like that, because once you get outside the main towns and cities, I think any part of the countryside is going to give you all those sort of things that you want.
3: We did do a walk once in the Lake District area uh, with a vicar friend of mine, and it was just wonderful. And my husband was thrilled, and my feet weren't quite as happy as as his were. And so if there's a way that we could combine the two, it would be absolutely fantastic to get back to the country.
0: You know, it might make sense to make a headquarters in one beautiful village with a B&B, and you could walk and mm-hmm. bike from, from that point out Ooh. in different directions. Maybe Roy and Jillian might have an idea. If you guys could have one place where you wanted to just have a, six days of just enjoying that corner of, of Britain from one farmhouse B&B, what would you choose?
1: I think Dorset would be Roy's <laughs> choice. <laughs> I'm,
0: thinking, I'm thinking the North Lakes District, yeah. but... Uh, but there's, I mean, anyway, you could do the Cotswolds, you could do it in Dorset. Uh, yeah, I don't think you could you'd do go, do it go wrong In Yorkshire, anywhere. There,
1: yeah. there's so much choice. There is, That's isn't the trouble, there? Trouble, yeah.
0: I think you've got an, a wonderful pile of options there, Barb.
1: Mm. Oh, that sounds
3: great because we have not been to Dorset. Try before. Yorkshire.
1: Yorkshire's a beautiful area.
3: Okay, I'll mark that Yorkshire one also.
1: Yorkshire.
0: Mm. Very nice. And oh, also remember, gosh. a lot of tourists don't realize that there are taxis in these little villages. And for a reasonable price, they can take you back to your home base if you've been out hiking. And if there's two of you, especially, and if your feet are a little tired, boy, that's a beautiful thing to take advantage of.
3: Oh, that would be great. Yeah, good Wonderful. luck, Cora.
0: Thanks for your call. Thank
3: you so much. I appreciate all the help. You bet. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. I
0: Bye know. And Kay's on the line in Walnut Creek, California. Kay, thanks for your call.
3: Hello, yes.
0: Yeah, do you have a comment or a question for yeah, Roy and Yeah, I
5: Jillian? was hoping you could discuss the Field Studies Council classes that are offered at National Trust Properties throughout Britain.
2: Well, it's um, it's not one of my normal sort of areas of expertise, but the Field Study Council is an organisation, a sort of I think it's government funded. They encourage studies within the countryside. They use centres like the National Trust houses, field study centres, um, and you can take all sorts of classes from country crafts through watercolour painting, anything really that's both adult education but also has some relationship to the countryside.
0: Well, that sounds quite nice, actually. Hmm. Do you stay in a village? or
2: Well, sometimes people stay in, in uh, private accommodations. Sometimes it can be a youth hostel. It can be any any sort of... Summer different. camp for adults. Essentially, yes.
1: Courses in things like stone wall making and yeah. thatching. And, and yes. nature walks and yes. things like this. Yeah.
5: The, the spot I've been to is at Flatford Mill, which oh, yes. is the oh, right. northeast of London. In
1: Suffolk. Yeah. Yes.
5: Between um, Colchester and Ipswich, mm-hmm. and that's Constable country,
1: mm-hmm.
5: and they offer a lot of art classes there. Yeah, and there is accommodations on site. You can stay in Willie Lott's Cottage.
0: Even. Oh. wow!
5: So it's a fabulous, fabulous place. You mm. know,
0: I love this notion that people say that's Constable country, meaning what? Well, John uh, Constable, the, the, the painter. The, the painting. So a lot his of his Famous
1: painting, Flatford Mill. Ah, okay. Yeah. And then
0: you can say Thomas Hardy country. Yeah. And, yes. What are some other places like that? In in New York Moors, you've got James it's Harriet country. James All Harris. creatures
1: great and small. That's you right. You yeah. Beatrix
0: Potter country, Wordsworth mm. country, and
1: it's now very important Downton Abbey country. Oh, that's right. Now, yeah. where's that exactly? It's in Berkshire, in the beautiful home called Highclere. Is that and home they, actually yes, open to the public? They ha- have open to the public? Yeah, because
0: that is a huge hit in the United States mm.
1: right now. Yeah. yeah, and in Britain, everywhere.
0: Okay, Kay. Thanks for your call.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: Roy Nichols and Julian Chadwick are taking your calls as they guide us around the handsome countryside of England right now on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. Sue's on the line in Westlake Village, California. Sue, thanks for your call.
5: Oh, thank you. Um, I'm going to be in England, and we're going to be uh, have about five or six days in the Cornwall and Devon areas, and I was wondering if you could suggest one or two, uh, like, home-based villages Hopefully, we're going to be traveling by train. Um, I thought, you know, having five or six days down there was going to allot us enough time. But now going through the guidebooks, I think we could spend our whole three weeks there. So I was just wondering, what shouldn't be missed?
1: Well, you're not going to be able to get to little villages by train. Uh, You can go to the major centers like Penzance and then perhaps get local buses out to uh, some of the most beautiful little villages, a place called Mousel, which is Mouse okay. Mousehole, mm-hmm. but you say it Mousel, and mm. that's a typical Cornish fishing village.
0: Is it fair to say you can get almost anywhere by bus from yeah, the train station? Yeah, but stations? there
1: won't be regular buses. No, yeah. but, but even
0: around uh, Dartmoor you can get around by yes, bus, which is yeah. very sparsely populated. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: And,
2: and Sue, so I was just thinking, you were mentioning you were going to Devon, but uh, if you were thinking of South Devon, which is not too far from the main railway line from London down to Penzance that Gillian just mentioned, places like Dartmouth, Salcombe, Um, lots of lovely little villages around there, and they're not too far from the main railway line. I think it goes through places like Totnes, and then you can catch local transport through to some of the smaller villages.
0: You know, anywhere you go in England, uh, Sue's going down into the southwest, you can venture into the moors. When people see moor on the map, North York moors, Dartmoor, Mm. and so on, what does that mean?
1: Uh, It's an expanse of usually high land that not very much will grow on, so it's just very sparsely.
0: So it's never developed.
1: No. So they're um, quite wild. Yes, they are quite wild, wild. If you want yeah. wild yes.
0: England, you go to the moors. Is that but they're there, is
1: also it? incredibly beautiful. It's not and just Nicole's, wild and windswept.
0: I am so charmed by the moors. Every time I go into a moor, I just feel there's something romantic and timeless about mm. it. And and you can stumble upon those Roman roads, actual paving stones of a. 1800-year-old Roman road. Certainly, in,
2: in I think, Rick, you're thinking of the Roman road in the North York Moors that goes right, across yeah. the stretch of it. Most roads weren't actually like that. They were weren't paved with stone. But you can follow Roman roads. You can follow roads from the medieval period. You can follow prehistoric trackways. And these clapper bridges? The Clapper Bridges. These are just basic stone bridges that cross a lot of the streams and rivers. But they go back to the mystical medieval oh, days. several thousand years ago. And, wow. and, and as Gillian was saying, this is wasteland that hasn't really been developed. It's not great farming country. Sheep, ponies, all of those sort of things. And so rabbits. the impact. And rabbits. the And tourists. Fox hunters. Fox hunters. Do they still do that? Um, no. Legally
1: not, but they still do. They still, guys, do. put on
2: red coats and get on their
0: horses across the boxes. countryside. Yeah. Yeah. The
1: police have got think, better I things to do. I don't things, think I'm, I'm going to try
0: that one. <laughs> <laughs> Sue, there's lots to see and do when there you get out into the more Country. You've
5: just given me so many new ideas. Well,
0: your so. main challenge is to get rid of that whole notion of five days and bump it up.
5: I know, I know.
0: Hey, thanks so much for your okay, call. Okay, thank you. Let us know how your trip goes.
5: Okay, Bye thanks. Now. Bye.
0: Gillian, you've lived all your life in Britain and you've got all of this pastoral wonder at your doorstep. If you think back on, on the, the moment that makes you think, yes, it's a beautiful country to get out and just breathe it in, where would you take me?
1: Well, funnily enough, a place just five minutes from where I live, which is called the Ditchling Beacon. And, and why, why would you take me Because out? you have the most stunning views over the countryside and the sea for miles and miles of beautiful patchwork of fields trees woods the sea the, the cliffs the white cliffs and i just love it in fact i want to be buried there
2: and that's just five minutes from your home yeah that's a beautiful place to be able to go yeah roy how about you i i think both our choices are going to be local choices because mine's going to be a place called bull barrow hill and again it's five minutes from my house at the top of the the chalk hills at the back of my house and like Ditchling Beacon, you, you get this incredible panoramic view of the landscape, both to the north and to the south across the hills, the sea to the south in the far distance, going north, looking for 20, 30, 40 miles. I have a sense that when you stand there and enjoy this
0: 360-degree panorama, you're looking at more than natural wonders, that you're connecting
2: with your heritage. Well, it is. It's where not really so much where my ancestors lived, but it's an area I've lived in for 20, 30 years. It's where people have lived for thousands of years and have left their impact on the countryside. And it's around you all the time, and I think you're aware of that. Whenever you go to places like Ditchling or Bullbarrow Hill, you're aware of the continuity of life. And uh, like Gillian wants to be buried at Ditchling Hill, then I think thousands of people have thought that way before. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been
0: enjoying Pastoral Britain, thanks to Roy Nichols and Gillian Chadwick. Thank you very much
2: for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Rick.
1: Cuba is the new Iceland, and it'll be one of the Italian country regions. So, no, I don't want to go to Cuba. I'd much rather go down to Dorset with its wonderful Bow Bow Hill. Wonderful Bow
0: Bow Have you ventured out into the English countryside? Let's hear about it next at 877 333 7425. Listener travel reports from the pathways and country lanes of rural Britain are next on Travel with Rick Steves. Now that we're ready to explore the countryside of Britain on our own, let's hear from those of you who've already ventured out into the back roads and hinterlands of the British Isles. We're at 877 333 7425 or by email at radio at com. Lisa's on the phone in Columbia, South Carolina. Lisa, thanks for your call.
6: Hi, Rick. It's nice to hear you.
0: Yeah. Do you got any ideas about traveling in Britain?
6: Yes, this is one of my favorite subjects when I tell people about our family vacation we took a few years ago. To Europe, and our first stop was flying into Heathrow, and I, instead of going straight into London, we went to a bed and breakfast in the Cotswolds, and that was really very memorable and, and a nice rest for us at the beginning of our vacation with jet lag, and we had an 11-year-old and an 8-year-old with us. And
0: Oh, no, so let's uh, reiterate that. From Heathrow, rather than taking two jet laggy kids into London... <laughs> You picked up a car and went straight for the Cotswolds?
6: Yes, we picked up a car and went straight to the Cotswolds. And
0: the Cotswolds are charm-plus. I mean, little half-timbered towns, uh, easy, quaint country roads, a great place to get over jet lag uh, with or without kids.
6: Yes. We um, stayed in a nice bed and breakfast, and, you know, sometimes it can be a little difficult finding a bed and breakfast when you get two kids that are not necessarily going to sleep on a cot in your room, but we found a place. And um, they were very nice.
0: Now, great, a great stay- thing about B&Bs is uh, other families are staying there. A lot of English families will be staying in B&Bs. Yes. So you can get um, the kids together.
6: Yes, and the people that own the B&B had smaller kids than mine, but they had a swing set in the backyard, and the kids played together. And, you know, those connections you make with people, the local people there, that's really what you remember, the kids remember even more than which museum
0: you went to. And... Now, Lisa, do you remember when you were booking your B&Bs, is there any way to find out if they are families running the B&B or a retired couple or a young couple? Or
6: Well, um, this B&B, I emailed back and forth with them, so I suppose I could have just asked them.
0: Because I think that's a great idea if you're traveling with kids to find B&Bs that have kids your kids' age because if they do, they, they really enjoy the... Um, just the fun of having guests, paying guests, and they've got all the gear for the kids and can be uh, extra bonus. Yes.
3: So
6: we had a lot of fun doing that, and we went up to Warwick Castle one day, which the kids just thought was fantastic.
0: Now, what did your kids like about Warwick Castle? Because it's kind of the um, Disney sort of over-the-top <laughs> designed castle for tourism.
6: It is, but it was... Um, I mean,
0: I like it. If you've got kids, you've got your peacocks, <laughs> and you got your knights on armor, and you got your swords and shields, and you got your dungeon, and uh, all sorts of stuff.
6: Yes, and um, with not as many gift shops as Disney, so it was nice. But we, um, we loved the trebuchet.
0: What is a trebuchet?
6: It is something that catapults a cannonball, but it operates a little differently than a catapult. Okay. But
0: and your kids got into that?
6: They loved that because it was huge. Two people actually had to get in there and walk the wheel around to get it cranked up. They just thought that was really neat, and the jousting was fantastic,
0: When you get to a place like Warwick, you'll probably want to check at the entrance at a little schedule board to see what special events are going on that might be family-friendly.
6: Absolutely.
0: Like jousting. Probably say jousting at 2 o'clock, sword fight at 3 o'clock. Yes,
6: and they had an excellent bird show as well.
0: Yeah, that's Warwick Um, Castle. You pay 25 bucks to get in, but it's a whole (laughs) day of entertainment.
6: I think I even got a discount looking it up on the Internet. It hey, know, so good for good.
0: you. Hey, Lisa, uh, what did you do to keep your kids happy when it comes to eating in Britain with an 8- and 11-year-old?
6: Well, I have to tell you that we stopped and got a loaf of bread and some peanut butter and some jam or jelly or whatever they call it over there. Yep. And that's what we ate when we couldn't find anything else to eat, and that was very convenient to have.
0: Because you know, that's a good idea. If you've got an 8-year-old <laughs> and 11-year-old in the car, have a pantry. You can get peanut butter in England. <laughs>
6: You can. I was so... When I saw the peanut butter and jelly, I was like, oh, this is perfect. You have a hard
0: time finding peanut butter on the continent, but England, uh, they understand the beauty <laughs> of peanut butter. Are you going to take another trip with the kids? Yes. What's on deck?
6: Probably some France and maybe a little
0: Italy. I think that's the logical sort of next step to expose your kids to the wonders of the world. Lisa in Columbia, South Carolina, thanks so much for your call.
6: Thank you.
0: Happy travels. Bye. We're checking in with listener travel reports right now on Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-7425. You can also share your travel stories with us in our online radio message board. You'll find it in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Jennifer has given us a call from Austin in Texas.
5: Yes, hey, I'm so excited that I can talk about this part of the world. I was so surprised by it.
0: Oh, tell me why and where.
5: Oh, I had wanted to hear Gaelic spoken as a native language, and I asked someone one time where I could do that. And on a trip back from Italy one time, I just got on a train in London. I got on the overnight and went to Inverness and across Scotland and out to the Western Isles because that's the only place that I could find that they spoke Gaelic as a native language. Well,
0: now, let's talk about that for just a sec. So Gaelic is like the old Celtic language that was in um, British Isles before the Angles and the Saxons came, and, of course, the Welsh and the Irish and the Scots are Celtic peoples, and you've got a Gaelic language in Wales and one in Ireland, and you actually found Gaelic spoken in Scotland?
5: Yes, but they call it Scots Gaelic,
0: Scott's when you're in Gaelic.
5: Scotland they call it Scouts Gaelic and you know like I said I wanted to hear it as much as I could so I found a BBC station on the rental vehicle that I was driving and basically when you listen to it you can hear the Norse influence when you're in Scotland it's really different from Ireland
0: now that's a very interesting thing when we think about media in Britain because in the United States if you have a regional accent you're not going to get prime time but uh, <laughs> in, in Britain they actually want the regional accents to keep that sort of uh, cultural vibrancy going and They've actually got stations dedicated to different regions and also an attempt to keep Gaelic alive. So, you actually uh, tapped into that a little bit.
5: Oh, I was fascinated by it. It's such a lyrical, beautiful language, you know. So, I would just listen to it all the time in my rental car.
0: Now, let's make sure people know what we're talking about because you can think of Scotland and you cross Hadrian's Wall, across the borders, you get up to Edinburgh, and that's sort of the gateway to the Highlands and the highlands seem remote, but from the highlands, you go even further out into the Atlantic Ocean, and there's this ring of islands way out there, the Outer Hebrides. That's where you went?
5: Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh, yes. You get on London. I sleep to Inverness. I get there at 8 in the morning. I run for the bus, you know, in Inverness, and then that takes me right across the top piece of, of Scotland to the most wonderful little town. This is a little town that... You know, I would be tempted to go and just spend a vacation in this little town. It was called Ullapool.
0: Ullapool. Okay, now, Mm -hmm. so you slept on the train from London to Inverness?
3: Yes, I've done that several times.
0: And then you catch the bus across Scotland to Ullapool, U-L-L-A-P-O-O-L. Yes. Very charming, but from there, you hop in a boat?
5: From there, I had to wait a couple of three hours, and then I picked up a three-hour ferry ride across to the Western Isles, and I was staying in Harris, which is in the south. So,
0: so I... Harris is the big island of the of the, of the Outer Hebrides, or the big, the big town, is that right?
5: Lewis and Harris is the name of the island. Stornoway okay. is the topmost big city, okay. which is a beautiful small town at the very top. Is that the biggest the largest...
0: town in the Outer Hebrides, Stornoway? Ah, uh, yes. So describe the metropolis of the Hebrides.
5: You know, you almost feel like There's this sense up there that you're on the top of the world. Everything looks like it's going to curve when you look out. The buildings are low. You know, the streets are kind of, you know, curving. I had never driven on the left (laughs) side of the road. So you rented a car
0: in Stornoway. I mean, are you just out there with rabbits or something?
5: (laughs) No, no, no. You're out there with sheep who were literally on the island. They own the island. And so I get in, it's a little truck, and I realize that they don't have rental cars there, as far as I can tell. Huh. They have rental vehicles that people rent to haul animals. Okay. They pull engines. They do everything in these things, because this was a really, this was a work vehicle. had a rental thing on the side. Now, if you've never been to the islands there, Scotland and England have very narrow roads, but on the islands there is a one-lane road, and... Everybody, every 10 minutes, there's a little pull-off on the side. Mm -hmm. So you see far off in this very wonderful kind of moon-like landscape, and you see the cars coming, and whoever wants to pulls over, and people go by. But the truth is that the sheep on the island, the sheep will sometimes be sleeping or laying out on the road. And, you know, the mama sheep is standing there going, okay, this is my territory. (laughs) So, you know.
0: Now, when you get to the isles of Harris and, uh, what is it, Lewis and Harris, How can you go even farther off of the mainstream?
5: Well, you can take ferries out to the outer islands. They're much smaller islands that you can take further out. But the most amazing, I've been to beaches all over the world, more or less. I'm a beach person. These are the most beautiful. On the Isle of Harris, I mean, I walked around like someone had hit me in the head. I just—I took pictures every five minutes. I couldn't think. It was the most beautiful beaches I have ever seen in my life, bar none. Whoa. Bar none. So, but then, further out from there is an island called St. Kilda. It is the last landmass between Scotland and Newfoundland. I mean, it's another four hours out by tiny boat. Four hours boat
0: off of the Isle of Lewis and Harris?
5: Yes, off the Isle of Harris. Further out
0: toward Iceland and Greenland and Newfoundland. Whoa.
5: Yes, and this little cluster of islands was inhabited for thousands of years. And the last culture that lived on there, the last people left the island in 1932, but they lived on the seabirds and with the eggs, because this is one of the paramount places for seabirds, uh, nesting, mating seabirds for the whole world. So
0: nobody lives there now except sort of a wildlife uh, refuge. Yes. Why did you go out there? It sounds like an arduous journey.
5: Well, it was an arduous journey. It's because it was a -a (laughs) once-in-a-lifetime thing to get to see this culture. This beautiful the you know, the buildings are built into the ground. Oh, so there are
0: old buildings still there that are like ghost towns.
5: Beautiful old stones built into the ground. So they're, they're
0: ghost towns that people vacated them 80 yes. years ago.
5: 32,
0: 1932. 1932. Now, is this a tour that you take from Harris?
5: Or is there a ferry? or Oh, it's a, you have to charter a boat you've got 30 minutes leeway because you have to have a window of weather or you won't survive the trip.
0: So you charter a boat were you alone on this or was there a group of people that shared this? No, the there
5: were there were several people that were going, okay. but so it, you know, it's a small boat that holds maybe about 8 people. I will tell you just not to be too graphic, but I stood outside and held on the outside, so the sea spray. I mean, people were hanging over the sides <laughs> of the boat, you know. Wow. Yeah, well, it was lots of uh, seasickness happening, let me just put it that way.
0: I, I just want to review this whole exciting adventure. You're turning Scotland into adventure travel. You can oh. sleep on the train from London to Inverness, which is the main town of the Highlands farther north than Edinburgh. There, you catch the bus over to Ullapool. Mm-hmm. And from there, you take the boat ride the out ferry to the now, that's ferry,
5: the ferry
4: to
0: Stornoway, which is the major town on the Isle of Lewis and Harris in the outer hebrides that 's the far reach of Scotland and then from there you 've enjoyed these incredible dreamy otherworldly beaches, <laughs> and you catch this rugged little boat out to an island four hours further into the Atlantic, which is now uninhabited and filled with all sorts of birds.
5: And, and wild indigenous sheep that are only in, the, in those islands is the only place they All have. right,
0: Jennifer, I think we just tripled the tourism on the Isle of St. Kilda for next so. year. Thanks so much for your call.
5: Thank you so much. All
0: right, call again next time you have an adventure.
5: That would be great.
0: Okay, thanks. bye now. Kate's on the line in Napa, California. Hi, Kate, thanks for your call.
4: Hi, how are you?
0: Great. Got some stories about traveling in Britain?
4: Uh, and Scotland specifically, yes. Uh, I've been there over a couple of times. First time I went over, I took my son, who was 18 at the time, and we flew into London and then we flew up into Glasgow. We spent our time tracing the family roots, which were not too distant. I'm third generation from Scottish grandparents. We had a really wonderful experience everywhere that we went. One in particular, was up in Kirkmichael, which is just north of Pitt Lockery, up in the Speyside area of Scotland. Okay. And uh, we stayed in bed and breakfast the whole way. I took a long time to plan this out. I was driving. We stayed on all the back roads. My son was funny because he said, Well, it doesn't matter if we take a wrong turn because we'll end up where we want to be anyway. It's rather small. Um, <laughs> Scotland is about the same size as the state of Maine. So, but we were having dinner in the uh, restaurant of a bed and breakfast one evening and they had fixed vegetarian haggis for us, which I know is an oxymoron, but <laughs> it was true. And the uh, the owner of the inn came out and said, well, traditionally, they put whiskey on top, you know, pour the whiskey over the haggis. And I said, well, I'm ashamed to say, much to my father's chagrin, I don't like whiskey. She said, oh, and I said, but when in Rome? So I put it on the haggis, and it, it really did taste very good. Oh,
0: you got to have whiskey on your haggis.
3: <laughs> Come on, vegetarian. what kind of a Scottish yeah, person right? are you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> but they Went must have been kind of um, evangelical about their whiskey. Then they probably saw you as a good Scottish American and wanted to give you a little bit of appreciation of the national drink.
4: They did. And when she served our dessert, she said Jeff, her husband, wanted us to come into the pub, and he had a surprise for us. And we walked in, and he had a table all set up with glasses and you know wee dram's, and he had there were eight or nine bottles of whiskey there, and they ranged. You know, flavored, and you know I've lived in Napa for over 25 years, and so I'm really aware of those whole nuances of wine and how different wines can have different flavors in them. And so he had the bottles arranged, and he gave me a book, and then he went over with his friends, and they were having a jazz guitar jam session, and I sat there and went through all of them
0: just and on really your own. Got... You just were like self-service, uh, self-taught. All of a sudden, you're distinguished. Yeah, I mean, the... they
4: were there, They were there to ask questions. Yeah. They taught me to say Glen Morangi and not Glen Moranzi. <laughs>
0: Uh, This is very interesting to me, Kate, because I've had the same experience going to Scotland and having people who want you to appreciate their drink, and it sounds like you you can understand the fine nuances in wine. I have a tough time, to be honest, when people tell me about this is oaky or this is cherries or whatever in the wine, Mm -hmm. but when they say that in the whiskey, it's like right in your face. You know this is different. This tastes like peat or or this would taste more smoky or whatever, and you really have this wonderful character personality that comes across in the whiskey.
4: I, absolutely, and I think that the key to that is, and, and this is what I learned, and then I saw why my father would take over an hour to drink one straight-up whiskey, that you just sip it. You just allow it to touch your lips and roll over your tongue.
0: And it becomes and, a very good friend.
4: Yeah, and it's <laughs> very warming and wonderful.
0: <laughs> I was there, and on my sort of welcome-to-whiskey experience, and I could really see how these Scottish people could become actually too friendly with their whiskey.
4: I think that it is a good friend to have <laughs> in
0: moderation. In moderation, right. um, But, you know, yeah, I, just, I think a good tip is to encourage people in Scotland to go into the pubs and uh, venture away from the beer. And if you don't know what to order... It seems like every local person has their favorite whiskey, and they'd love to expose you to it, and it's generally going to be their treat, and you're going to have a lot of new friends. And
4: I, It was fun because they were all lined up, and I could really do right. a tasting, and, and, and the way he had them lined up, they went from the kind of the lightest to the really peaty, horrible...
0: Pitlochry is famous for its distillery, I think. Uh, it's a beautiful little town.
4: Just north of Pitlochry, there is a distillery called Edradour. Mm-hmm. And it is the smallest distillery in Scotland, if I remember correctly. If the still there were like an inch smaller, it would have to be private.
0: Ah, interesting.
4: And it's, a, it's just a sweet, wonderful, you know, white farm, and they're so pleasant there. And it that has a real kind of a creamy flavor to it that mm. that whiskey, and it, it's very difficult to get, especially over in this country, but they have a beautiful um, tour that they take there and then they have a, Edradour has a cream liqueur that they make with, where Bailey's makes it with whiskey that they've just distilled and they put in some cream. Edradour does it with 10-year-old scotch and 33% fat buttermilk. Mm-hmm. It's amazing.
0: Kate, apart from finding your uh, whiskey roots, did you find any of your family roots over there?
4: Yes, absolutely. And my birth name is Cowie. And and they'd say, oh, you're a cowie. (laughs) There are two towns in Scotland named Cowie. One is near Stonehaven, which is where my people come from.
0: How do you spell that? Uh,
4: C-O-W-I-E.
0: C-O-W-I-E. So you went to a Mm -hmm. town named the same as you, and probably every other person was a cousin.
4: In some way shape or form yeah but it was fun to be able to say yeah and we my uncle had done all the genealogy so we went to all the towns and that was my son's and my first trip as we went to every town
0: maybe if somebody doesn't know their scottish roots they could just go to cowie and, and say they're a, they're a cowie
4: <laughs> they could go anywhere and say anything and they'd be <laughs> welcome the people oh. there are so warm and so I, friendly
0: i know what you mean hey kate thanks yeah. so much for your call all right
4: thank okay you. happy travels mm-hmm, bye
3: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe through
0: the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Our technical team includes Andrew Wakeling, Jonathan Lee, Chris Luchik, and Kate Mulhern-Graham. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. There's more online in the radio department at RickSteves.com. That's where you can listen again to any week's show, post your comments on what you hear and send us your own original travel haiku or a short hometown brag that we might read someday on the air. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org.
2: Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for London, England, Great Britain, Scotland and Ireland. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for this region and beyond, visit the travel store at
0: ricksteves.com.